Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Roman Ziarski. He is Professor Emeritus at the Indiana University School of Medicine. We'll be discussing his newly published book, How We Outwitted and Survived the Nazis, the true story of the Holocaust rescuer Sophia Stirner and her family. Roman, it's an honor to be with you today. Thank you for inviting me to discuss my book. I am also honored to participate in your podcast. It's my honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you so much. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? So I am a scientist. As Wikipedia describes me, a Polish-born American immunologist and microbiologist. So I worked for about 50 years as a biomedical scientist and a professor, mostly at Indiana University. But I should say that my biomedical career is completely unrelated to the topic of the book we will talk about. Maybe only all these years of research equipped me with tools to study any subject, including history, which is my hobby, I should say. So about myself, I was born in Warsaw, Poland, after World War II. And this war really cast a huge shadow over all aspects of my life during my childhood. Number one, because large portions of the city were still in ruins, also at school, in the media, at home. We were constantly told how horrible the war was and that it could really happen any time again, which was probably true, but also it was uh, some kind of a propaganda trick to convince us that, yes, we need our communist government to protect us at all times. So that's my background. Thank you. What inspired you to write this book? So I am passionate about assisting persecuted people in general. Probably this uh, runs in my family because during Second World War, my family was, uh, was rescuing Jews from the Holocaust in Poland. Now the Jewish history and Jewish life in communist Poland were really never mentioned. Uh, there were few Jews left in Poland those who were there were assimilated or cultured, and they really didn't talk about their Jewishness. 
for example, the famous writer Isaac Bashevich Singer, who lived in Poland before World War II, he wrote in, in Yiddish, and his books were never mentioned or published in communist Poland. Now, when I was in the United States in 1977, I picked up his book, The Magician of Lublin. I read this and I became really hooked. I read all his books. By the way, he won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1978. So through his books, I discovered something very new to me. The whole world of Jewish life in Poland at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. Now, if I had asked my parents about it, they would have probably told me all of this. But it never occurred to me to ask it because I didn't know about it. So my family had several Jewish friends. My uncle was also Jewish. But they really very seldom talked about how they survived the Holocaust, how they were rescued. It was only sometimes mentioned in passing. And really they considered these rescues and how they survived as a part of normal everyday life at the time. And they never boasted about this. But I understood that this was really saving themselves and saving Jews from the death camps. But in communist Poland, the Holocaust really was not talked about in a way as a separate event. It was included under the umbrella of all Polish citizens were suffered and were killed during the war. They didn't differentiate between different ethnicities. And really, I think the Holocaust was not talked about much right after the Second World War until maybe 1980s. After the war, when Jews emigrated to different countries, nobody wanted to hear about their suffering, their stories. People didn't understand any of that. This changed later, of course. Now, in Poland, people knew exactly what happened. Everybody was there, everybody witnessed that, but nobody wanted to talk about it. Only later, I realized how huge of an event the Holocaust was as a separate event, the tragedy for Jewish people. I looked at pictures from Warsaw, let's say, before the Second World War, bustling with people, a lot of Jews. You didn't see any of this in my lifetime. I looked at pictures of the ghetto. I looked at pictures in the concentration camps. Once you see people's faces, you kind of realize, how could these people all be murdered? How they could all disappear. So that made me realize how important the rescues that my family was doing the war were actually. So I wrote this book that I wanted to preserve the story of my family, how they survived themselves and how they rescued Jews during the war. What message do you hope to convey to readers in this work? The message of this book is the need for tolerance, understanding, and peace. And I would say that this book is about being human under the most inhumane conditions. And this is passionately anti-war story showing how brutal the war is, how stupid it is. It is contrasted with the humanism and selfless of 
ordinary people like my family who are the characters in this book. And this applies to all wars, not only to Second World War. I put several quotes in my book. I'd like to read some of them because they really give the message of my book probably better than I can put it. Please. I am quoting, first quote, I hate war as only a soldier who has lived in it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. That's Dwight Eisenhower. Another quote, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And this is from Desmond Tutu. Another quote, many of the greatest crimes in history were caused not by hatred, but rather by indifference. They were caused by people who could have done something, but did not even bother to lift a finger. That's from Yuval Noah Harari. And two last quotes. Nothing will end wars unless the people themselves refuse to go to war. And that's Albert Einstein. And another quote. Peace cannot be kept by force. It can only be achieved by understanding. Again, Einstein. And I think these quotes apply to all wars, apply now just as much as they applied during that time. What are the primary themes in your book? So the book is about a young Polish woman who happens to be my aunt, Zofia Sterner, her Jewish husband, and the rest of her family. So it describes how they survived World War II and also how they rescued many Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto. I would like to quote here from Marek Holter, who was a Polish-born Holocaust survivor living in France. He came to Poland in 1980s and interviewed my aunt Zofia Sterner, and he published a book about it titled La Forge du Bien in French, and I quote what he writes about Zofia. There is such a confidence, such a gift, such a bundle of good. I am greatly struck by it when Zofia Sterner tells me how she led her charges out of the ghetto. During all the occupation, Sterner's devoted heart and soul to the cause which they had voluntarily chosen to save Jews, give them comfort, and to help them leave for more secure places with passes in their pockets, end of quote. Now, this short interview published in his book gave no details what exactly happened, how they did this, who else was involved, how they survived themselves because they were considered Jewish, how they avoided being put in the ghetto concentration camps and so on. So I wrote this book to answer these questions, what exactly happened. So in the book, I chronicled the lives of my aunt Zofia, her husband Vacek, and the rest of our family throughout the entire war. I wrote it in the form of Zofia's memoir in the present tense as though events were happening before her eyes to make it more accessible for general reader. Now, as a source material, I used Zofia's diary notes, transcripts of her recollections, 
I had many of those. My conversations with her, with her family, also testimonies of her husband Vacek at the Warsaw war trials in 1946 and 47. Also Vacek's book about his capture and internment and also some of the letters from some of the Jews they saved. So the book is intended for general audience, but it is entirely nonfiction. All the events that happened there are exactly real, what happened. All the people in the story are real people as it was remembered by my family. So I did not add any characters, events, dialogue, dramatization. So I consider it like a historical, micro-history, historically accurate. Second part of the book is a historical context. We'll come back to this maybe later. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Stitch Fix. Love trying new fashion trends, but find it all a little intimidating? With Stitch Fix, refreshing your wardrobe has never been easier. They figured out the new 2024 trends, so you don't have to. Just give your stylist your size, style, and budget preferences, and they'll send you five just-for-you pieces, plus outfit recommendations and pro styling advice. Refresh your 2024 wardrobe now and get started today at stitchfix.com. What story does your book tell? <laughs> yes, that's uh, probably will be a long answer. I can maybe give a short synopsis of the book, what happens. So in the first days of World War II, my aunt Zofia, who is a Polish woman, 30 years old, and her Jewish husband, Vacek, traveled to the mobilization point, but then on the way they become separated. Then Zofia flees the advancing German army east to Lwów, or in the eastern part of Poland. These are harrowing conditions. She's dodging bombardments, machine gun fire, air raids. There is no food, there is no shelter, and she's still trying to reunite with Vacek. Eventually, she uh, is in Lwów. She gets some help from the mayor of Lwów and the governor of the province. And then she finds a peaceful refuge in a country manor of her high school friend, east of Lwów. A few days later, September 17th, Poland is invaded from the east by the Soviets. Then the manor is attacked and looted by the peasants, probably with some encouragement of the Soviets. Zofia has to flee back to Lvov. Lvov is under the Soviet occupation. She is sheltered by a local physician. Then we find out that she is actually pregnant, but all the hardships of the journey cause a miscarriage, so she loses the fetus. So in the meantime, her husband Vacek has been searching for her. He finally finds her in Lvov. He's a civil engineer. He finds a job with the occupying Soviets. 
in the east part in Ksemieniec, east of Lvov. They move there, they settle there, but soon they find themselves on the Soviet secret service list for deportation to labor camps in Siberia. So they have to flee immediately. They travel under very harsh conditions. This is a extremely cold winter. They travel through the Soviet and German occupied Poland. Eventually they arrive in Warsaw. They reunite with the rest of their family. They lost everything during this journey and fleeing. So Zofia and Vacek move into my mother's apartment in Warsaw. My mother's name, they call her Nusia. Nusia's husband, my father, Kazio, is heavily involved in organizing underground resistance to the German occupation. So the life, of course, is very hard for everyone, but actually it's especially dangerous for Zofia and Vacek, because Vacek is Jewish, and according to the Nazi law, my aunt, his wife, is also considered Jewish, and they both should move into the ghetto, Jewish ghetto. Now, they refuse to do that and try to live outside the ghetto. Now, at one point, Vacek is called to the German administration office in Warsaw, and Germans are unaware that he's Jewish. And actually, Vasek is half-Jewish, his father was German, so they think he's German and they offer him German citizenship. Now, he refuses to do that, but then he has to go into hiding because they would follow him why he didn't become a German citizen. So now he is in fighting. Zofia is pregnant again, she delivers a healthy baby, so that's the good news. Bad news that happened is that my father, Kajo, involved in this uh, underground organization, is captured by uh, Gestapo. And fortunately, he had a hidden handgun. He shoots the guards and escapes from Poland. He goes on foot through Tatra Mountains to Slovakia. Then in a long journey, he joins the Polish army in the Battle of France. So... This is in 1940, in uh, May, eventually. And then he ends up in an internment camp in Switzerland after France collapses. And the works there is a dentist and a physician. Then he gets into a fight with a German soldier. He has to flee Switzerland, ends up in the United Kingdom. So that's a side story from the main track of the book. So now back in Warsaw, the Warsaw Ghetto was established in November 1940. And Jews lived there under extremely crowded and unsanitary conditions. They suffered from hunger, they suffered from disease. And my aunt Zofia often bribes ghetto guards and passes food to her Jewish friends in the ghetto. Then in 1941, Zofia and my family start rescuing Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto. Now, how did they do it? There was a court and finance building on Leszno Street, which had two entrances. One was on the ghetto side, and the other one was on the Polish side. Now, all the ghetto gates were guarded by German, Jewish, and Polish 
police. But the doors to this court building had only Jewish and Polish guards, so it was easier to go in and out of the building. So Zofia had a good friend who was a financial officer in that building. So the Jews they wanted to rescue would make an appointment with him in his office in the building. Zofia would meet them there. He would issue them Polish passes saying that they entered the building from the Polish side. And then Zofia would lead them out of the building to the Polish side. Then she would take them to my mother's, which is her sister Nusha's apartment. That's where also Zofia and Vacek were staying. My mother had a dental office there. Now, the dental office is important because many patients were coming and going, and Jews who were arriving from the ghetto pretended to be patients so that the neighbors or anyone on the street would not get suspicious. Then they would stay in the apartment until Zofia and Vacek, through a network of friends they had, could obtain fake Polish identification documents for them. And then my family also helped to find safe apartments for these Jews that they could move into. So this operation continued for about two years, and all the time there was someone staying in my mother's apartment who was saved from the ghetto. As soon as these people would leave, new people would come in. And this was going on until the Warsaw Ghetto uprising in 1943. So they saved this way about 400 to 100 Jews, approximately. Zofia and my mother Nusha would become close friends with several of these Jews they rescued. In the book, Zofia described close friendship, especially with physician Edek Kosman and uh, his wife Zosia. They were helping them to hide, they were helping them to overcome many threats and many difficulties, and this friendship lasted for a long time. What happens next is that in the spring of 1942, the Germans started to get ready to eliminate the ghettos. And unexpectedly to everybody, they summon Vacek, they find him, even though he's in hiding, somehow they find him, they summon him to a German company and offer him a job to supervise construction of a labor camp in Poniatowa for Jews who will be moved there from the Warsaw Ghetto once the ghetto is liquidated later this year. And this was a big dilemma, of course, because here is a Jew in hiding and the Germans are offered him a job now. He's to work and build a labor or concentration camp for the Jews. I mean, what is he to do? But he's also involved in underground resistance and discussing this with his uh, superiors there they decide that he should take the job he should infiltrate this german company and the labor camp so he can help to save jews from there from the labor camp so he takes the job he works there he helps jews if they want to escape for example from the camp and then he starts to running into problems in a year later, in 1943, 
the Germans begin to suspect that Vacek is actually involved in the Polish underground resistance. So the situation becomes very dangerous and tense. The Germans start to blackmail his wife Zofia, try to take her and her baby as hostages. Eventually, through the contacts in the underground, Vacek finds a sympathetic German who actually manages to stop this blackmail. They still work in the underground resistance. They, there are many tense situations. They avoid arrests. Eventually, in August, August 1st, 1944, the Warsaw Uprising starts. So Vacek joins the fighting as a lieutenant. He is a commanding officer of a company. Zofia's brother is also fighting there as a lieutenant. My mother, Nusha, joins the uprising as a nurse. They narrowly escape many times being killed during the fighting. Eventually, the Germans, as we know, crash the uprising. Vacek dramatically escapes through sewer tunnels from the uprising area in Warsaw. But he is later captured by the Germans. He encounters two German officers. This is very astonishing encounters described in the book. Then eventually he is sent as a prisoner of war to Germany, to a camp. Now in the meantime, my aunt Zofia, her little daughter, my mother, their mother, are expelled from their burning house in Warsaw. They are marched to a prisoner camp outside Warsaw. They are sorted out, then put on a train heading south towards Auschwitz. They don't know what's going to happen to them. They don't know where they are going. So they manage to escape from this train. They find refuge with their friends. Then they move south to a small town called Rabka, where they eventually witness liberation by the Soviet Red Army and end of the war. Now Vacek is in Germany in the prisoner of war camp. Is, the camp is liberated by the Allies. Vacek actually escapes from the camp, goes on foot to the British occupied zone, becomes a commander, an organizer of a displaced person camp, and actually three of those camps. He organizes them, and later, after they've done this, he sets out again on foot to go back to Poland through the Soviet-occupied zone of Germany. He's detained by the Soviets twice. He manages to overcome this, goes back to Poland, finds his family. After the war, they all move to Warsaw, they rebuild their lives, but they still run into some troubles from the now communist government in Poland, who were actually Soviets, were the occupiers of Poland at the time. And that's the end of the war story. There is a little epilogue in the book in which my aunt describes how Zosia and other cosmos, the very close friends, Jews that they saved, survived. And I quote uh, some of the letters that they exchanged after the war, describing what happened to uh, the cosmos. So that's the story of the book. Your postface that pre presents the historical context 
is very extensive, covering about one third of the book. Why did you add this postface to Zofia's memoir? What's in this postface? The memoir, as I outlined, is about the survival of the Druze, about the rescues, touches somewhat on the difficulties they faced, and obviously they had to oppose the Nazis to evade them. They would execute not only Jews when they captured them, but also they would execute all the rescuers and actually the entire family of the rescuers also. So that itself was extremely dangerous and difficult to overcome. But also they had to oppose and evade the surrounding Polish society, which usually was indifferent or sometimes hostile to those who were helping Jews. So I want to present uh, some kind of a balance. To be historically and morally correct, I wanted to present the survival and rescues of Jews described in the book in the light or in the context of the anti-Semitism that existed at the time, the atrocities against Jews that also happened, and just put it in perspective how frequent or actually infrequent all these rescues uh, were. Another reason for this historical context was that I wanted to provide some really very basic information about World War II in Poland and about Polish and Jewish situation at that time to readers who may not be familiar with this subject. Because many people, let's say, in America or Western Europe are, of course, familiar with participation of their countries in World War II. But they may not be familiar, actually, what was happening at the time in Poland. And I know this from many conversations with uh, with people I know here. So this historical context has three parts. First, the Jewish situation in Poland before World War II. Then the Polish-Jewish relations, extent of Polish help, but also anti-Semitic Polish atrocities that did happen. And finally, generally, what was the human cost of World War II. Can you explain the history of Jewish life in Poland prior to World War II? How did the demographics of Polish Jewry reach the point they did on the eve of World War II? There were very many Jews in Poland, and there were so many Jews in Poland because for centuries this was the safest place for them to live. So just to give a very quick run through the Jewish history in Poland, Jews were already in the 10th century, they were in Poland. Polish coins had inscriptions in Hebrew. In 1264, the Duke of Greater Poland, Bolesław de Pius, gave Jews unprecedented legal rights in so-called Statute of Kalish. And this was extended to the entire kingdom of Poland by subsequent Polish kings. At the same time, in the rest of Europe, Jews were being expelled from England in 1290 mostly, from France in 1306, from Spain and the Holy Roman Empire in 1492, 
and all these Jews moved east and they settled in Poland and in the surrounding Eastern Europe. In the 1500s, they established Jewish authorities called Council of Four Lands. So they had representation in the Polish parliament that was called Sejm. And in 1573, the Warsaw Confederation granted freedom of religion to all people in the kingdom. And actually, there is a quote in 1606, Poland was named Paradisus Judiorum, which uh, in Latin means paradise for Jews, in effect celebrating a wedding of a Polish king, Zygmunt III Vasa, to Constance of Austria. And this was praising the favorable conditions for Jews in Poland, which was true at that time. And later, actually, this was converted into a kind of cynical proverb, Poland, heaven for nobility, purgatory for townspeople, hell for peasants and paradise for Jews. So people are kind of envious of Jews actually being privileged in Poland. So in the 18th century, in 1750, for example, 70% of the world Jews lived in Poland. They had many academies in many cities, uh, Lublin, Kraków, Brześć, Zamość, Lwów, many cities. And in 1791, Polish parliament voted the so-called May 3rd Constitution. And this constitution, again, was very progressive and gave, gave freedom to all religions and so-called popular sovereignty to all people in Poland, including Jews. Now, this constitution was opposed by the surrounding empires. Poland was attacked by Russia, also Prussia and Austro-Hungarian Empire, and was partitioned and occupied by these countries. So it stopped to exist as a country for 123 years. Poland regained independence as a democracy, and it guaranteed equal rights, including voting, education, to all citizens, including Jews, including women also. And at that time, of course, also there was a Bolshevik revolution in the Soviet Union. And in 1921, hundreds of thousands of Jews fled from the Soviet Union to Poland. And the conditions for Jews in Poland were, of course, much better than still than anywhere else. The chief of state, Józef Piłsudski, he governed Poland for most of the time from 1918, when Poland regained independence to 1935. And he protected the rights of all minorities and also Jews, of course, and he was very sympathetic to Jews. Between 1921 and 1939, during that interwar period, the Jewish population in Poland grew by half a million people. So by 1939, there were three and a half million Jews in Poland out of 35 million citizens. So at that time, about 65 to 70 percent of the population were Poles, 20 to 25 Ukrainians, Belarusians, Lithuanians, and 10 percent were Jews. Now, during this interwar period, Jews were very successful in Poland. They became highly educated. In the years 1923 to 24, Jews made up 26% of all students at Polish universities. 
63% of dental, 34% of medical students, 29% of philosophy, 25% of chemistry, 22% of law students. In the 1930s, half of the doctors and half of the lawyers in Poland were Jewish. Also, Jewish-owned businesses employed over 40% of Polish labor force. Shows you the success of just 10% of the Polish population. The cultural life was also very rich and vibrant at that time. There were 150 Jewish newspapers. Uh, there were many Jewish writers, musicians, singers, composers, painters, filmmakers, theater directors. There were mathematicians, economic scientists, politicians. Very prominent, very successful, very successful people. Also, some of the Jews at the time began to assimilate into Polish society. But still, most of the Jews, I say about three quarters, only spoke Yiddish and lived in separate traditional communities, as they have for centuries. Now, this is different than in Western Europe, where most Jews were either assimilated or acculturated. Not the case in Poland, only some. But also in Europe at the time, there was a rise of nationalism and anti-Semitism, and Poland was not spared. In the 1930s, there was increased influence of Polish nationalists, they were called Tendetsia. Uh, there was growing anti-Semitism, and it was fueled, of course, by the domination of Jews in several segments of the Polish economy, and people resented that. In 1934, ultra-nationalist groups formed. The notorious ones were so-called ONR, National Radical Camp, and also its splinter group called Falanga, which was National Radical Movement. Now, they were banned by the government after three months of existence, but nevertheless, they were still there, and they continued illegally. They organized boycotts of Jewish businesses, and sometimes they attacked Jews. And this became especially frequent after the death of Józef Piłsudski, who was protecting Jews and minorities in Poland. So between 1935 and 1937, 69 Jews were killed in these attacks, 500 were injured. Now, the Catholic Church for centuries was not sympathetic to Jews. I mean, to say the least, mostly was anti-Semitic, actually. Now, in 1936, the primate of Poland, the head of the Catholic Church, August Hlond, wrote, and I want to quote this because that's very telling, so I'm quoting. So long as Jews remain Jews, a Jewish problem exists and will continue to exist. It is a fact that Jews are waging war against the Catholic Church, that they are steeped in free thinking and constitute the vanguard of atheism the Bolshevik movement and revolutionary activity. It is a fact that Jews have a corruptive influence on morals and that their publishing houses are spreading pornography. It is true that Jews are perpetuating fraud, practicing usury and dealing in prostitution. It is true that from a religious and ethical point of view, Jewish youth are having a negative influence on the Catholic youth in our schools. End of quote. Very damning. However, Hrond also admits that, and I quote again, there are many Jews who are believers, honest, 
just, kind, and philanthropic. There is a healthy, edifying sense of family in very many Jewish homes. We know Jews who are ethically outstanding, noble, and upright. End of quote. Hlant also agreed with the boycotts of Jewish businesses, what the nationalists were proposing, but he forbade attacking Jews and their property. And I quote again, One may love one's own nation more, but one may not hate anyone. It is forbidden to demolish a Jewish store, damage their merchandise, break windows, or throw things at their homes. It is forbidden to assault, beat up, maim, or slander Jews. One should honor and love Jews as human beings and neighbors. So there are these conflicting, this is the end of quote, conflicting statements. And Klon's point of view was, I would say, typical and shared by many Catholics in Poland. I have another quote to balance this. So things were, on one hand, they were not good, and on another, they were good. So what did Jews think about their situation in Poland? So Raphael Scharf, a Jewish writer, grew up in Poland at the time, and he writes, if it was so bad, why is it so good? And then he answered his own question, and I'm quoting from Scharf. The interwar years, despite the growing impoverishment and the rising tide of anti-Semitism, could be seen as a sort of golden age of Polish Jewry. Jews were born, grew up, had families, studied, earned their livelihood through craft and trade and the practice of professions, maintained cheddars and yeshivas, secular schools and institutions of higher learning, built synagogues and theaters, played and danced and enjoyed themselves, wrote books, pursued their manifold and diverse interests. They lived, on the whole, peaceably among their Polish neighbors, separately yet together, and made an enormous contribution to industry and commerce, to Polish literature and culture. There was total freedom of worship, political parties, Jewish members were in the same and Senate, the parliaments, yet there was pressures of growing up and living as a Jew in a country where Catholicism dominated and anti-Semitism permeated the space. So that's how life was at that time. How does this work shed new light on Polish-Jewish relations during the Second World War? This is a very complex issue. Polish-Jewish relations were extremely complex and really defied generalizations. But let me try to present the different aspects of this. Jewish writers often point out that Poles did nothing or did not do enough to save Jews because of their anti-Semitism and point out that they often killed Jews or participated in the Holocaust. The main examples they usually give are horrific pogroms that uh, happened immediately after the German invasion of the Soviet-occupied Eastern Poland, which was in June and July 1941. These pogroms were in several towns, mainly Szczuczyn, Wąsocz, Radziwiłł, and Jedwabne, where Poles, with German agitation and often help, brutally murdered some 1,300 to 
2,800 Jews, two of these towns by burning them. So that was horrible. There were also killings of many Jews by Polish right-wing partisans. Now, the partisans in Poland were very different groups. There was the right-wing, nationalistic, so-called national armed forces, and they were extremely anti-Semitic, and they killed Jews without exception. Now, the main Polish underground resistance force was called Polish Home Army, and some of them were also anti-Semitic, some of them killed Polish Jews, some of them offered a lot of help. Jewish writers also very often uh, cite frequent denunciation of Jews who were hiding from the Nazis, robbing the Jews, killing them by Polish peasants. Often the refusals of most Poles to help Jews are also cited. Now, on the other hand, Polish collective memory and the official position of the Polish government actually is that Poles did not participate in the Holocaust at all, offered the best help possible to Jews, and that the few murderers and informers were the aberration. Polish writers, of course, acknowledge the barbarism and the tragedy of the Holocaust, but they also stress all the difficulties that had to be overcome in helping Jews. So helping Jews in Poland was extremely dangerous, because in Poland, and later in the Soviet Union, These were the only countries under German occupation in which any help offered to Jews was punished by death. And death to the entire family, often entire household, or often entire village. The whole village could be burned down. The help to Jews was offered. Now, Poles often provided food for smuggling to the ghettos for starving Jews, like my family did. Poles also were bringing news about the Holocaust to the Western Allies. They brought this news to President Roosevelt. They were urging allies to perform some anti-German actions to stop killing the Jews. So they were advocating for the Jewish cause. And Polish underground, with the financial support of the Polish government in exile, established in the fall of 1942 the Council to Aid Jews under the code name Zygota. So this organization provided help to thousands of Polish Jews to survive the Holocaust. Polish nuns were also usually sheltering Jews in orphanages they ran. And finally, there were tens of thousands, or some people say hundreds of thousands, of individual Polish people who were helping Jews to survive, just like my family. So those are like two uh, sides of the story. So, I mean, what was the truth? What, what actually happened? So about 10% of 3.5 million Polish Jews survived the Holocaust. But then if we exclude the large number of Polish Jews who fled to the Soviet Union and survived there, and also if we exclude Jews who survived in the German concentration and labor camps, only 1% to 2% of the remaining Polish Jews survived. So why so few? There are several reasons for it. The number one is that the Nazis first concentrated on eliminating Jews in Poland and also other Eastern European countries, Lithuania, Latvia, Ukraine, where most European Jews lived. And the Germans could do that because they were in complete control of these countries. Jews were already gathered in the ghettos, so they were an easy target. And then the Nazis combined the brutal terror 
shooting people right on the spot and so on with very skillful deception because they were very skilled in propaganda and deception. And also this was unprecedented speed and efficiency of mass murder that they mastered, first by shooting Jews and then by gassing them in gas chambers. So in Poland, Poles could not have really even attempt to save 3 million Jews that were in the ghettos already, guarded, separated, and being either shot or transported to the death camps. Now, such a large-scale help by Poles would have required really a general national uprising, which was really out of question. This would have been a suicide for all. Now, the Germans at that time were the greatest power Poles themselves were defeated in the battlefield, they were terrorized, they were hunted, subjugated, and they could not prevent the Nazis also from murdering over 2 million ethnic Poles. So that was not possible realistically. And also there was absolutely no help from the Western Allies. They did not want to get involved in stopping the Holocaust, despite many pleas. Now, at the beginning of 1942, before the start of these great deportations of Jews from ghettos to the death camps, there were about two and a half million Jews still alive in Poland, because the rest either they fled to Soviet Union or they were not alive. So from these two and a half million Jews, about 10 percent, so 250,000, managed to escape from the ghettos and try to survive among Poles. So the question really is not how Poles could have saved millions of Jews that were killed in the ghettos or transported directly to the death camps, but how they could have helped those who escaped. And the question could be also asked, okay, 10% of these Jews escaped, why only 10% escaped? Why more or they all didn't escape? Well, there are several reasons for this. The main one is probably that most Jews as bad as life in the ghettos was, they felt safe over there, and they did not believe that they would be killed at all. This was incomprehensible to anybody, including Jews, until it was too late to escape. Also, most Jews in Poland and Eastern Europe for centuries lived in highly traditional, closed communities, about three quarters of Jews. They didn't speak Polish language, they didn't know any Polish people they could turn to for help if they wanted to escape. And they expected hostile reception on the Polish side, so they didn't escape. And also, many Jews had large families, very close-knit, and they were reluctant to abandon these families, and the entire family could not escape with older people. So those were the reasons. How does this work shed new light on atrocities against Jews in Poland during the Holocaust? The new light is uh, actually coming from historians. And as I mentioned in my previous answer, the question is really not how, how Polish people could have saved all the Jews that were shot or killed in concentration or death camps, but how could they have enabled Jews to escape from the ghettos 
and then to survive among Polish population. So I would frame this question is how much help was provided to the Jews who escaped from the ghettos and how much harm was done to them. And my short answer would be that unfortunately there was not enough help. The help presented in the memoir, of course, is one story, but at best only 1% to 8% of the Polish population helped to rescue Jews from the Holocaust. Now, large cities like Warsaw, Warsaw was especially sympathetic to Jews, but still, even in Warsaw, most of the population was indifferent. The minority helped, another minority was hostile and preyed on Jews, they denounced them, they blackmailed them for money. Now, in villages, in small towns, the situation was even worse for Jews because most of the population was often hostile. So there were extraordinary rescues, but there was also indifference, betrayals, denunciations, horrific murders. And the historians are still debating and arguing on the extent of help and murder and betrayal. So the exact numbers or even approximate numbers of Jews who perished, who were rescued, the numbers of rescuers, the numbers of indifferent so-called bystanders and the numbers of murderers are really unknown, very difficult to determine because there were no records of what happened. The help was done in secret, so nobody knew about it. Some of the murders were recorded, some were not. But I'll try to give you some rough estimates that is coming from the most recent work of several historians in Poland. For example, Barbara Engelking, to me, is one of the most prominent historians who studies this. This is Jan Drabowski also, some other historians. So they estimated the average survival rates of Jews in hiding, so those who escaped from the ghettos, at 22% in villages and small towns and 35% in large cities, like Warsaw, Krakow and so on. These studies are based only on three major cities and eight counties. So the numbers for entire Poland, of course, are not available. But in these studies, these others estimated that Half of the Jews who escaped from the ghettos and perished while hiding among Poles was either killed by Poles or denounced by Poles and killed by the Germans. The other half was captured and killed by the Germans. But the range in these eight different counties and then three different cities was really huge, from 26% to 82%. So the best we can do is to extrapolate these numbers from these small populations to entire Poland and see if we can come up with some kind of a rough estimate. So taking this range of the Jews who escaped from the ghettos and perished among Poles, and then half of them died because they were denounced or killed by Polish people, we can come with a very rough estimate for the entire country that the number of Jewish deaths for which Polish people were responsible could be as high as 40,000 to 160,000, a very large number. And this information is very difficult in Poland to be accepted by many Polish people. But I think 
Polish society should come to terms with this tragic aspect of history. So Polish people were not the ones who were herding the Jews into the death camps. They were not there. They didn't participate in this part of the Holocaust. But on the other hand, there were these atrocities on Jews who escaped from the ghettos and the death camps. But on the other hand, I mean, there's definitely no doubt that the Nazis were completely responsible for the Holocaust. And this, let's say, 100,000 lost Jewish lives due to Polish atrocities is still less than 3% of more than 3 million Polish Jews that were murdered by the Nazis. There is a well-known historian, Jan Gross, for example, who published three books titled One Neighbors, Another Fear, and Another Golden Harvest. Now, in these books, he assembled the most gruesome and horrific and cruel descriptions of murders of Jews by the Poles. He was very selective by describing this. But even he admitted that I want to quote from him because he is well known for just presenting the atrocities. But in his book, he wrote, the violence, and I quote, inflicted upon Jews by local people, both the number of murder victims as well as the value of plundered property amount to a small fraction of the violence inflicted on Jews by the Nazis. We must always remember that the catastrophe of European Jewry was caused by the Third Reich, which conquered most of the continent, eventually proceeded to murder all the Jews within its reach. All the interaction between locals and the Jews, however violent, was but a supplement or a small fraction of the main disaster which befell the Jews at the hands of the Germans. But the only way the Jews could have survived was with the assistance of the local population, end of quote. So to this point also, I want to quote Polish historian Jerzy Jedlecki, who wrote, if there had been only the Gestapo, how much easier it would have been to survive in hiding and count on a network of human solidarity. What was the Polish nationwide balance sheet? Terrorism or baseness? And he answers, there's no way to subtract one from the other or offset one with the other. We, as Poles, will bear responsibility for what we make of our past how we reconcile his glory with its shame, end of quote. I think this is a very wise statement. And obviously for Jews, the Holocaust created very deep wounds that will never heal. And again, I want to quote Joseph Lichten, who was a Holocaust survivor himself, who lost his entire family, and that's what he wrote, I quote. I do not intend to get involved in statistical games. The value of Jewish lives and the heroism of the many who saved them cannot be evaluated by figures alone. That the rescuers form a small minority makes their efforts more significant, more courageous, more humanitarian. But it is hard not to remember the millions who were indifferent. We know that they could have been executed for giving help. We know that it is difficult to transform ordinary men into heroes. We are willing to be rational, but our hearts object." End of quote. 
So I think that the exact numbers that the historians are arguing about are important for accurate historical records, definitely, or to have a sense of proportion. But I still think that the enormous moral tragedy of the World War II and the Holocaust are even more important. I mean, whether the numbers are larger or smaller does not change the burden of moral responsibility on those who, who killed or on those who just watched the killing and didn't do anything. So yes, there is this ongoing debate. Several historians are calling for truth. For example, Doris Berger, I'm citing her, concluded that such a competition in suffering is not morally valid in face of this unprecedented genocide and human suffering. So this is the claims of Poles and Jews who suffered the more. And Peter Hayes also called for understanding and for suspending mutual blaming and competing claims of having suffered worse, end of quote. And, and, and I agree with that. Can you tell us about Polish aid, help, and assistance to Jews and Jewish escapees? So I kind of briefly mentioned this already in my previous answer, that help and assistance, number one, it was given by Polish underground organizations to some extent. There was this, as I mentioned previously, the Council to Aid Jews, Zegoda, was provided with funds from the Polish government in exile. There were actually parachuters flying from London to Poland, and they were jumping in parachutes and uh, loads of money for the Polish underground resistance and also for this uh, organization, Zegoda. So this was organized. I mentioned before that a big part of help were nuns in church-run orphanages sheltering Jewish children. But the biggest help was just individual Polish people, like my family, helping Jews, hiding them, finding uh, apartments for them, providing food for them. The estimates are very rough, and some people say 1-8% to of the Polish population was involved in this. And uh, this was help for people who escaped from the ghettos. As I said, the help in the ghettos was very difficult because the ghettos were very heavily guarded, even though there was food provided and things like that. And the help in the death camps, there was no time to help. This was impossible to do. There are many well-known prominent rescuers who are often mentioned who saved hundreds of Jews themselves. But actually, there were many, many, many people who were just unknown, like my family. All of this was done in secret, so nobody else but them knew about it. I don't know if this answers your question in enough detail. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. What was unique about Poland vis-a-vis the Holocaust and the fate of Jews in other European countries? That's a very good question. I'm especially glad that you asked that because I don't address this actually in the book. In the book, you know, there's the memoir part and the historical context is uh, limited to Poles and Jews. It doesn't really speak to the broader picture how Poland was similar or unique in Europe. So I would say that Poland was unique in some respects. Number one, Poland had by far the largest Jewish population in Europe. 
Also, Poland did not have a collaborating government. It was actually the only country in Europe occupied by the Nazis that didn't have a collaborative government. But because it didn't have a collaborative government, it was totally under Nazi control. And because most Jews in Europe were in Poland or in close by Eastern Europe, the Nazis decided to build most of their death camps on Polish soil. And they could do that and then they could proceed to kill the Jews because neither German nor Polish laws were in effect. This was lawlessness. So in Germany, Nazis didn't murder almost any Jews. Small number of Jews that were in Germany, they shipped them to Poland to murder them there. So there were no laws in Poland, no Polish law, no German law was in effect. So the Nazis could really do anything they wanted. In other occupied countries that had collaborative governments, they still had to obey some kind of a local law. But the slowness in Poland removed all the barriers to rob and kill Jews. So that was kind of unique in Poland. And this was also true of the parts of the Soviet Union that was occupied by the Germans. This is very well described, actually. I would recommend to read the books by Yale historian Timothy Snyder. He has two books. One book is called Bloodlands. Another book is called Black Earth. In these books, he describes all countries in which Holocaust happened. And his conclusion is that Germans were actually the least successful in Poland out of all occupied countries in Europe in recruiting collaborators for the Holocaust. For example, in several countries and regions that were first occupied by the Soviets and then by the Germans, so so these countries were Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, also Ukraine and Belarus, these countries aspired to national independence. Before the war, they were either part of the Soviet Union or part of Poland. So they had many nationalists that allied with Germany, hoping that after the war, the Germany will grant them independence. So in those countries, the nationalistic militias were formed. They were very quickly trained by the Germans. And even without German orders, or sometimes with German orders, they very quickly murdered the Jewish populations right after Germany invaded and occupied these countries. Then these militias trained by the Germans were recruited by Germans to participate in the Holocaust in the ghettos and the death camps in Poland. That's why all the guards and all the brutal treatment was not really done by Polish collaborators. It was done by these other collaborators. In other countries, like in Romania, for example, who was a German ally, In 1941 already, Romanians murdered 300,000 Jews on their own without any orders from the Germans. Or Vichy France, under German occupation, Vichy France police in 1942 deported 76,000 Jews to German concentration camps. So these countries were very complacent. Italy was somewhat of an exception. It was a German ally and it refused to give away its Jews to the Nazis and until the, in 1943 Germans occupied Italy because Italy wanted to switch sides to the Allies. So they invaded and occupied Italy and at that time they started to exterminate Italian Jews. 
So this extermination of Jews in other European countries than Poland and Eastern Europe really started later in 43, 44. And at that time, these countries who were either allied or had collaborative governments began to notice that the Germans were losing the war and these collaborative governments were less and less supportive of German actions and German orders. And for example, the, the latest transports of Jews to death camp to Auschwitz, for example, were from Hungary in July 1944. Hungary was a German ally, resisted for a long time, sending the Jews to the death camps, and finally they agreed to do that. And 430,000 Jews were sent to Auschwitz, about half of Hungary Jews. But eventually the Nazis ran out of time to finish the killing. So that's the story that Polish Jews were first because it was the easiest for the Germans to do and the most Jews were in Poland. How does this work contribute to the question of the uniqueness of the Holocaust vis-a-vis other mass atrocity situations, mass killing situations, and genocide situations? That's also a good question, whether the deaths and Jewish and Polish lives were unique or not. My answer would be yes and no. I think yes to Jewish side, no to the Polish side. And let me give you some examples and explain what I mean by that, why I think there is some uniqueness to Jews, but maybe not to Poles. So some examples I can cite. In Warsaw alone, which was a city of 1.3 million people before Second World War, 720,000 people perished during the war. 720,000. So this is more than half of the Warsaw population was lost. But out of this, there were 440,000 Jews and 280,000 Poles. So almost twice as many Jews as, as Poles. So this was, of course, tremendous loss of life for both Poles and Jews. And it's actually four times more than the destruction of life in Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined, which was about 180,000 people. So, a historian, Gunnar Paulson, calls it the greatest slaughter perpetrated within a single city in human history. That's a quote from him. So, this higher number of Jews speaks to the uniqueness. Now, it is usually accepted that about 6 million Jews perished in the Holocaust, total for other countries. About 2.5 million Poles perished, 25 million Soviets 7.1 million Germans, 2.8 million Japanese, so more Jews perished than most other countries except for the Soviets. And by comparison, France lost 600,000 people, United Kingdom 450,000, United States 420,000. And altogether worldwide, there were 80 million people who were killed in World War II. 80 million. 55 million civilians, 25 million military personnel. It's impossible to imagine 80 million people just being killed, just like that. I want to quote then from Jewish writer Raphael Schall, who wrote about one Jewish child only, one child. If we can imagine one child who asked, and I'm quoting from Schall, Mommy, 
when they kill us, will it hurt? No, my dearest, it will not hurt. It will only take a minute, she answered. It took one minute, but it's enough to keep us awake till the end of time. End of quote from Sharp. Strong statement. Cannot see the faces of 80 million people at the same time, but you can see the face of this one child. And we should remember that out of 55 million civilians murdered in World War II, probably there were millions of children who were asking the same question. And this is something we should always remember, never forget. So coming back to your question, in the face of this huge destruction of human life in World War II, 80 million people, was the Holocaust unique, 6 million Jews? I think it was for two reasons. Number one, because it selectively targeted all Jewish people just because of the Jewish ethnicity. And also because the highest percentage of their population was killed. 55% of all European Jews were killed. Now, if we compare this with the percentages, ethnic Poles were also targeted because they were Poles. There's no question about it. But Poland lost about 12% of its Polish population if we are not counting Polish Jews and other minorities. The Soviets, they lost 25 million people, but they lost 12% of their population not counting Soviet Jews. Germans lost 8%, but France lost 1.4%, United Kingdom less than 1%. So the answer was yes and no. I think yes, the Holocaust was unique. For Poland, maybe not unique in terms of numbers, but was extremely severe, definitely. Much more severe than anywhere in the West. How does this work address the question of why the Holocaust is still relevant 80 years later? Oh, yes, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book also, because I think the Holocaust is still relevant now as much as it was then. For example, I noticed the reversions of the Holocaust in the news over and over, but sadly, really for very pathetic and disappointing reasons. For example, in the United States, there have been calls to teach Holocaust denial in schools in some states. I will not mention which ones, unfortunately. Vaccinations and public health measures in the United States, again, in my neighboring city of Chicago, have been compared to the Nazi policies. And I wanted this book to be a reminder of the real Holocaust, but also I wrote it as a plea for tolerance, understanding, and peace, as I mentioned earlier. And I think it's a reminder because we need to guard against the conditions that spawned both World War II and the Holocaust. Some people think that, oh, this will never repeat, but I think it could repeat. I want to quote from the great historian Peter Hayes, who wrote, I quote, The veneer of civilization is thin, the rule of law is fragile, and the preconditions of both is economic and political calm. The countermeasures put in place then, which is after World War II, are now under attack, end of quote. And I think they are threatened by widening economic disparity, by the resurgence of nationalism, the growth of neo-Nazi, neo-fascist and white supremacist groups. All of this is coming at us through internet and media with a vengeance. And very tragically, there have been many wars and genocides all over the world after World War II. 
when I was growing up after World War II, I thought that this was the last war. The war was so horrible that it would never happen. But no, we have all seen footage of killings, genocides, bombing, artillery, rocket fire, tanks, attacking people. We've seen the wars in Rwanda, Congo, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Serbia, and now in Ukraine and Gaza. Thousands or billions of uh, civilians are fleeing for safety. And this is very tragic. My adult children commented, this is just like the first chapter in your book, Dad. And yes, it is, unfortunately. So my question is, why have we not learned from history that war does not solve any problems? That in the end, there are no clear winners ever, only misery and hatred. This is my question. And the closing sentence in my book is, I still hope history stops repeating itself, if only we could learn from it. So that's one reason why I wrote the book. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this work? In a way, I'm still working on this book. Two things. I'm not a historian, but I studied a lot of history for this book, and I cannot stop studying history. I am still studying history, maybe for the next revision of the book. But right now I'm working on the Polish edition of this book. I have just finished translating this book into Polish. I am exploring possibilities of publishing in Poland. I also am in touch with a Polish movie director who is interested in a screenplay based on this book, and I may be involved in this project. So this is not the end of my effort with the book. I wish you the best in these endeavors. They are absolutely important and absolutely necessary. I can hardly thank you enough. Thank you very much for this discussion. I am honored to be here and thank you for all your effort in spreading the word. This thank you for important. everything you taught us and everything you shared with us. Thank you so much. As we end our dialogue today, I am Ari Barbalat, your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today, it has been my blessing and my honor to be in dialogue with Roman Ziarski. He is Professor Emeritus at Indiana University School of Medicine. We have been discussing his newly published book, How We Outwitted and Survived the Nazis, the true story of the Holocaust rescuers, Sophia Sterner and her family, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press 2023. Thank you.